Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I joke around with a lot of people. I say, I wanted to write a book about values, but I knew if I wrote a book about values, nobody would read it. So I put the F word everywhere. Because essentially what giving a fuck is, is you are deciding what you care about. You are deciding what you value in your life. I don't think you can write well or perform well or, or do anything well if it isn't really fully coming from who you are and, right. and what you feel passionately about and what you're being honest about. Right. And, and I think this tension kind of exists in all areas of life. It's very common in, in the self-help world to say, be true to yourself. That's nice and everything. We live in a society where we're interdependent on each other in many ways. So there's this constant tension of paying attention to what you yourself want and what's also like good for the community around you. And that's hard. And I think a lot of people who suffer, it's because that balance has gotten out of whack too far one way or the other. Either they're constantly people-pleasing or they're constantly selfish and self-absorbed. This episode of The James Altucher Show is brought to you by Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard for small businesses. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. You're busy selling your product and having ideas and managing people. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work in today's world. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting for you, so it's easy for you to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months for free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash James. So, Mark Manson, welcome to the podcast. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Mark Manson, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. You know, I want to tell you something. What? I initially did not want you on the show, and you know why? Why? Because I've been reading your stuff for so long, and I feel like, first off, you're a great writer. Everyone should read your stuff. For anyone who doesn't know who Mark Manson is, you got to check out his blog, markmanson.net, which I've been reading you for years just off your blog, but you also wrote a great book. Best-selling book. I think 
you know, Amazon has these lists where they keep track of how many pages people actually read, and you're number one. You're number one on the list for all of the books in the Amazon store right this second. And this is where the explicit language starts. So I have to warn you because his latest book has a naughty word in the title. The book is called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. And you have a really good, it's like this, uh, like brutal directness in your writing. Like yeah. I, it's a, it's very, um, it's not like it's direct in a different way than I am. You, you bleed a lot in your stories too. And you tell many personal stories, but you're, you're first and foremost, extremely direct, no bullshit. And you're really kind of giving insights and then using stories to explain the insights. I think I do a little bit of the reverse, but uh, I love the directness. I love the writing style, but I feel like a lot of your ideas just completely overlap. Like if you take the Venn diagram of yeah. like your ideas and my ideas, they like totally overlap. Yeah. But but then so 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 sorry for for uh, I'm gonna we're gonna talk. It'll be more regular conversation in a second. Then I go to this poker game like a month ago, <laughs> and it's um, Matt Kepnes invites me to the poker game. Who's who's been on the blog before? You know, Matt, he has a blog about traveling. Ramit Sethi's there. Derek Halpern's there, Blake Eastman's there, who runs a poker school. So, so, and uh, Clay Hebert's there. So it's all these people I know very well. Like I know them all extremely well. And this guy's there who I don't know. And he, you know, I didn't, he said something to me. I honestly didn't even hear what he said. So the whole evening, I'm just even trying to figure out this guy's first name. And then <laughs> a week later, we're at a birthday party and you're introduced to me, and I'm like uh, Mark Manson, and who I've been reading for years, and I'm like, oh, that was you sitting right next to me at the poker table that whole <laughs> eat for like six hours that evening, and you were doing pretty good at poker too. <laughs> it was pretty funny, man. It's because um, I met you that night, right. and I was excited because I've been reading your stuff for years too, and so it's like sweet. I get, I finally, and we have a lot of mutual friends, so like great, I finally get to meet James and you come in, like shake your hand and you like go and sit down and then it's like, I'm like, all right, he's just like a really chill guy. Like, that's fine. You know, and it was one of these weird social situations where everybody in the room has a huge like platform and audience and all right. this stuff. So like, we didn't really want to talk about business. We were just bullshitting and playing poker. So I was like, okay, whatever. And then I saw you the next week and you're like, hi, I'm James. Nice to meet you. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh, that's the other thing too. Like if I'm at like in a party situation, I don't really remember anybody. Yeah. Like, so people will come up to me and says, oh, we've met like a dozen times before. And I'm like, I honestly don't remember anyone because I'm just, I get anxious in like a big crowd. Yeah. But then I remember Oh no! You said to me we played poker like a week <laughs> we ago. Poker a week ago. Yeah, and then it came all rushing back. You were the guy who, for the whole evening, I was trying to figure out who, what your first name was because <laughs> I've seen your your photo on your site and you look like your photo, but you know, no, everybody. Yeah, you, you don't know, put so, two and two together. Yeah, yeah it's hard to yeah. to to know. Yeah. But um, by the way, the 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 I did start reading your blog um, when that post. The subtle art of not giving a fuck went totally viral yeah. and everywhere. And then I went back and started reading everything on, yeah. on your blog. And uh, it was a great article, which I guess they called you up and said, hey, can you please uh, add 250 pages to this yeah. uh, article and we'll make it a book? And you did. And it was a great book. Like this, yeah. this book is uh, like, there were some passages that are highlighted like almost 5,000 times. Like people yeah. are really getting a lot of insight and advice into this book. And I would say, and that let's, 
talk about this. I'll, I'll talk about one of the concepts, which is really uh, dear to me and, and which you kind of, I mean, it's the whole idea of not giving a fuck, but it's part of that is also being okay. It, you kind of challenge the word mediocre, I feel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important insight in our, in our, you know, a plus participation trophy society, right. you know, which is like, oh no, we all have like this purpose that's somehow like this secret inside of us that we have to unlock. And then we're going to be suddenly the greatest in the world. It's like every, all 7 billion people are going to be the greatest in the right. world. We're and that one geniuses. special thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's a real cause of depression. I see from emails I get and maybe you see from emails yeah. you get, people are like, oh, I'm 27, but I feel like I've, failed in life because I haven't reached, figured out my passion. I don't know what I'm going to do for my life. But it's not just 27-year-olds. It's like also the person sitting in their cubicle at age 55 who's divorced and unhappy and wants to, a new start in life, but they feel like they can't just, they can't just do it. They have to like, there has to be like fireworks and explosion that happens in order for to push them, you know, into something. Sure. So anyway, now... Yeah, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Right? How do you how do you start thinking of that? Uh, so it's it's actually like most great ideas. It it came about with a little bit of alcohol. Um, <laughs> a lot of my a lot of my ideas for articles they start out as just like conversations I have with people, um, and often with friends in a bar or something. And and whenever I'm like talking with somebody about something, and I have like one of us says something that kind of sticks, and it's like, wow, that's really good. Um, I pull out my phone and I jot down that, notes. That's really good advice. Yeah. So okay. So you, I, I can now just picture like you're in a bar, yeah, and someone's just like leaning over the bar, like about to throw up, and he's like, "You know what? I just don't give a fuck." <laughs> and I, you just start jotting it down, or like, what happened? Well, I, I, I honestly think it was like one of these things after like three or four beers. I, you know, a friend and I were joking around, and I was like, "You know, there's a subtle art to not giving a fuck. It's not easy." Like. That's really true. It, the there's there's is nuance important. to it. Yeah, there's there's a subtle uh, a subtlety to it, and uh, and I was like, wow, that'd be a great post. And so I jotted it down. I have this Google Doc file that's like just it's just this like vomit of dozens and dozens of random ideas and crap that goes through my brain. And um, and so yeah, I went I went to it maybe six months later and. Uh, you know, looked at it again and, and was like really inspired by it. And I was like, you know, you could actually tie this into a lot because essentially when we talk about giving a fuck, like I, I joke around with a lot of people. I, I say like, I wanted to write a book about values, but I knew if I wrote a book about values, nobody would read it. So I put the F word everywhere because like really essentially what giving a fuck is, is you are deciding what you care about. You are deciding what you value in your life. It, it, you make you make that that point, and it's a very important point because that I guess, and I, I guess I didn't fully connect the dots, but that's where the subtlety is. Yeah, which is that it's not you're 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 not saying, and and you 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 underline this very carefully in the book. You're not saying don't care about anything. Right. You're saying um, make sure you know what you're giving a fuck about. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and by the way, props to your publisher for Harper Collins, right. Harper One, for for letting you use you know this word in the title and you use it all throughout the book and obviously people didn't care because yeah. it's the most widely read book right now on Amazon but uh you do like like I feel 
when I get into the danger, I feel we all, we all get into the danger zone sometimes. Like, no. what does this person think of me? Or how many likes is this post going to get? Or how many comments? Or how many downloads will this podcast have? Like, there are kind of irrational things that we give a fuck about because sure. it's the metric by which we 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 sort of choose a tribe we're going to belong to, and it's the metric by which we rank ourselves in the tribe, and that's what humans have been doing for right. two hundred thousand years or, or right. millions of years. So, okay. So I mean, it's the, the key word is the subtle part, and I think a lot of people they get so caught up with the F word, like they don't realize that because when you start thinking about okay, what do I care about? Like, what are my values, and what is worthwhile? Like, what what is worthy of me giving a fuck about? It's actually a really hard question to answer well. Like there are many things in our lives that we care a lot about, but it's maybe we shouldn't care that much. And then and and then there are other things that uh, you know we don't care much about, but we probably should. But it's hard to distinguish the two. It's hard to know, um, you know, like something as simple as like uh, we put a couple posts online and and they don't get shared or liked a lot. On one level, it's like, yeah, I shouldn't care about that. I shouldn't base my happiness on how many people are clicking and sharing my stuff. But then there also comes a point where it's like, all right, well, if I'm writing stuff that doesn't resonate with people, then that's like <laughs> a serious issue as my career as a writer. Right. So, so there's a lot of nuance in here that we have to uh, be able to look at and, and, and kind of prioritize things and, and understand like like use the word metric and it's a, a word I use a lot in the book like decide what our metric of success is uh, specifically because a lot of us just take whatever kind of society tells us and well, assume that's what success is. It's a very interesting thing because on the one hand you you can you I don't think you can write well or perform well or or do anything well if there if it isn't really fully coming from who you are and right. and what you feel passionately about and what you're being honest about which you which you allude to throughout this book and and even your earlier book which we'll talk about in a second yeah. but uh at the same time though if you're any one of these things you really do have to there is some level you have to care about what the audience thinks or else why are you doing what you're doing now sometimes for me if i write a really good post that i feel deep down this is good mm-hmm. i i can't avoid caring a little bit about how many people are engaging with it. But other times I just really want people to engage with it. Like you right. have to there is a balance. Right, right. And and I think this tension kind of exists in all areas of life. Um, you know, it's it's one thing, it's very common in, in the self-help world to say like, you know, be true to yourself and and follow your feelings and and um, you know, just do what you want. And that's nice and everything, but like, you know, if I went out on like Went out to like Six Ave and like started peeing on the corner, like just because I feel like it. Like is that, I, what, is that your true passion? That is like actually <laughs> how I'm. That is my true. Yeah, that's what's. That's what, your truth. Yes, this is my truth at the moment. Is I want to go pee on Six Ave, uh, but it's it's you you can't just go around doing that. Like there's we live in a society we live we live in, we're interdependent on each other in many ways. So there's this constant tension of like where do your needs end and and like. Like paying attention to what you yourself want and what's also like good for the community around you, um, and that's hard. And I think a lot of people who suffer, it's because that balance has gotten out of whack too far one way or the other. Either they're constantly people pleasing, or they are constantly selfish and self absorbed. And it's I think I think in general, you kind of everybody sort of starts off people pleasing. Yeah, I feel. 
because, or at least I did, because I just simply had no clue. I had no clue right. what who I was or what I wanted to be. You know, you're kind of you're kind of forced into adulthood in this weird way. Like, you, you know, biologically, you're you're an adult at a certain age, but you're still going to high school for a few more years, and then you're going to college for a few years, and then you have to like you're, you're told you have to get a job and rise up through the job. So we're told for almost a decade this kind of brainwashing about who we're supposed to be so we have no clue. Yeah, we we've built institutions around it, uh around socializing people that way, but also just like children in general. I mean, kids developmentally speaking, when we're kids, we are just wired to do what we're told, like cuz that's what gets us approval. So mom and dad told me, you know, to eat my broccoli and and do the color a picture and it, and we do that and then we're they're they're happy, they smile and they clap and they hug us and so it's it is a fundamental fundamental part of our psychology to seek that approval. Um, I guess you could almost define adulthood as developing the ability to draw that boundary of where uh, seeking the approval of others needs to end and seeking the approval of yourself begins. Yeah, but I think that's that's again where the subtle. I, I you know, so I'm forty nine. You're thirty three. It's hard, right? right? And <laughs> I don't think it's. I don't think that's a process that ever ends because yeah. we are always tribal primates, right. and there's always the alpha and the omega. And you're either moving close, and, and we have all these neurochemicals in our brain that are, you know, a billion times a day telling us if we're moving closer to alpha or closer to omega or being kicked out of the tribe. So right. this is like what, the causes of depression and anxiety sure. and and all of these things. I it's mean, you, hard. You even have a course on your site overcoming anxiety. Right. So it's an issue that is relate totally related to this. But let's talk about the the change from childhood to adulthood, which is let's say usually for people for men and women around the age of thirteen biologically. Mm-hmm. That was all, and that's kind of the, where where like often for many people, for me maybe or particularly for me for a long time, that has been the root of my insecurities, how I felt about myself at that age. Sure. And for you, you had this particularly traumatic thing happen. Yeah. Can you describe what it was? Which one? Well, <laughs> let's talk about the principal telling you to come to his office. Oh, yeah. So, there, yeah, there's a story in the book. Um, so I, I, I got a, I was a very... I guess I took a different tack than you did. I became a very rebellious, angry adolescent, and I started dealing drugs um, when I was about 13 years old. And I got caught for it, and I got arrested for it. I got kicked out of school. Dealing, yeah, buying, well, buying and selling. Because yeah. you didn't, you didn't mention that part in the book. Well, I wasn't like, I wasn't a dealer. You know, it's like I didn't have like inventory and, right. and all this stuff. But it's like because when you're that age, you're just like, oh wow, pot, like. And you go and buy twenty bucks, and then your friend's like, "Oh, I want some," and so you give him some for like ten bucks. And so, you know, at that age, there aren't real dealers. You, right. There's just kids who have it, and um, and I was one of those kids, and I got caught. And uh, how did the principal know? Did you ever find that out? Um, you don't mention that in the book either. He just kind of goes to your class and says, "Mark, come with me." There were people talked, which again, at that age. Right, you're talking twelve, thirteen year olds. So, yeah, like people talk, word got around, and 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 also like I wasn't very, 
<laughs> I, I wasn't very like I was pretty conspicuous about it. Like I was a dumb thirteen-year-old, so I was like openly like, "Hey, guess what I got?" You but, know. And- <laughs> but by the way, I hope this is not even too much of a reveal for the book because when I was reading the story for the first two-thirds of it, I totally thought. You, the principal was unfairly singling you out for some reason, <laughs> and he was totally wrong, and you were totally honest. Yep. So, well, it was it was written that way, yeah, on purpose. Um, because, and I just ruined it for everybody. Yeah, but. <laughs> you just ruined it. You just spoiled it. But I mean, to, this kind of ties back into talking about writing. Like one thing that's interesting about writing is, especially like kind of in in our our niche, is that there's kind of this implicit trust of of the author, like. You know, if you're reading something that's giving you advice, you just kind of assume that the author is a trustworthy, good person. Um, and so I kind of just kind of screwed up, screwed around with that in that chapter. It was like I started the chapter by like, yeah, I'm this kid who's being unfairly persecuted, um, being treated horrible by this evil principal. I'm like about to cry because I'm so scared. And then you find out. No, I'm just a lying little shit, and I actually did have the drugs. And well, and I want to, I want to just. That's very interesting because, like, I never view my 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 writing that way. I actually yeah. really like the way you did it. Yeah. And I was thinking, how would I have done this? Because I agree with you. I don't really like the way I like playing with, let's say, that self help genre. I really think yeah. people should not be writing in general self-help like that <laughs> right. that whole category is sort of a bs category yeah. and i always say advice is autobiography like if yes. you haven't uh you know felt it don't dealt it or whatever well it, what i like what i like and this is something that i think you're one of the only other people i know who who does this but this is a philosophy i have and 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 it's something that you do that i admire which is like we're not the guru on stage who's like, here are the five keys to make right. your life. Per-. You know, it's like you and I were both like, we're fucked up too, <laughs> and like these are all the ways that I screwed up. Um, and it's I'm not this like authority figure looming over you. I'm actually like I'm in the shit with you. So so, so and, and this is just my experience. And, and so it's interesting. So I think I probably would have started that um, with, you know, I, I would just would have said flat out. You know, I was 13 years old when I was first caught with drugs. Yeah. And just to kind of like, just put it right out there that this is not going to be your, <laughs> right. a self-help story. But I appreciate the way you did it as well. And again, it has your your usual directness in it. But but go ahead. So the principal kind of screws up your entire life. Well, so he kicks. I get kicked out of school. And, and Do they really kick out kids out of school for just like having... Yeah. <laughs> At least in Texas they do. Uh-huh. Um, and and in the nineties, um, I don't know who knows what they do these days, but yeah, I got I got thrown out of school, and I mean, thankfully, like my parents, my my parents were like present and competent and loving enough to like realize that I was a kid in a bad situation, and so they basically put me on house arrest and like homeschooled me for a while. The problem is, is that they got divorced like six months later. <laughs> so it's like what I say in the book is like within a year, um, I lost my freedom, my social circle, and my family, like all within a span of. Why your social circle? Um, because they realized that the kids I was hanging uh. out with were in, were involved in this stuff too, and so my parents were like, "You are not allowed to see any of your friends anymore." Well, what do you think they could have done? I mean, they were. As you as you just described, they were trying their best, and they were also going through something. Yes. What what um, do you think they could have or should have done, even just slightly differently? Um, 
I think they they definitely made the right call in terms of I guess like the logistical questions. They made the right call. They were right to cut me off from the kids I was hanging around with. They were right to keep me at home. And then they eventually they put me in a private school the next year, which they were also right to do. So I think they did a good job of that. My my big complaint and, and the thing I, I talk about it briefly. I have like maybe a paragraph or two about it about my family life. The thing that my parents were really, really bad at, and I spent much of my early adulthood like <laughs> trying to figure this shit out. Um, my family was very bad at just talking openly about their emotions. Um, so the joke in my family is that the house would be on fire and like one of us would be like, is it hot in here? And the other one would be like, it's a little warm, but I don't know. Why do you think it's hot? No, I don't think it's hot. You know, and it's meanwhile, like shit's collapsing around us and um, so that was the problem. Like, really, really difficult, painful stuff was going on around that time. And my parents were both ba- very bad at talking about it uh, openly. And my brother and I, as a result, you know, grew up without the tools to really talk or deal with it. And, and, and one tool in particular, which which I think many people can relate to, is... You never, it seems like the way you describe it, you never really had somebody um, kind of enthusiastic about validating you, about yeah. saying, you know, Mark, it's okay. You're good. We're going to deal with this. We're, no. we, you know, we love you. We're going to, you know, figure these things out and do these things and 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 so on. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with my parents was, so they're both very smart people and, they would say the right things. And I think they intended the right things. It's just that I don't think they necessarily had like the emotional toolkit to deal with what was going on themselves. So they would say stuff like that. They're like, you know, we love you. It's not your fault. We're going to make it through this. If you ever need anything, talk to me. But it's like, meanwhile, they're kind of emotionally shut down themselves too. Well, I mean, also they were going through... If they a got divorce. divorced just six months later, that means for probably the prior year or so. Oh yeah, it, their things were bad been for a while. Yeah. Well, why did they get divorced? Uh, essentially, just because they they couldn't talk about their problems. Like they, and and I can see it now that I'm an adult. I can kind of see, you know, I I think in relationships what you want to look for. So there's a quote that I love from an artist. He said, uh, uh, "The trick to." To a successful relationship is path- pathologies that complement one another. So it's like your craziness like compensates for her craziness, and her craziness compensates for your craziness. Um, and I think you can get situations like that, you know, where it's like, okay, he's like really shy and introverted, and she's really outgoing and confident, and so she can kind of like compensate for that and help him out. Um, you get a lot of dynamics like that between two people, but you also get dynamics where it's people share the exact same weaknesses. And so instead of helping each other compensate for their weaknesses, they simply reinforce it. And that was the case with my parents. So both of my parents, they're very bad at confrontation. They're very bad at openly addressing problems, particularly emotional problems. And so my mom is constantly trying to avoid, like there's something, something's wrong in, in the family, right? And it's my mom has her all of her like avoidance mechanisms and my dad's got all of his and instead of calling each other out on them, they're just kind of perpetuating, like reinforcing their each other's ability to avoid it. And from what I understand, this went on for most of their marriage. So, how, how do you think couples can recognize or address this? I think so. 
what's interesting is I think everybody has so look, we all like or we all we all don't like stuff that feels bad. Like that's a very obvious statement. Like we all we, none of us like confrontation or like dealing with problems. Um I think one of the key things is that we all have our own patterns of avoidance. Um and I think my mom and my dad have very different patterns and I think that's probably a big part of like why they couldn't spot it in, e- in each other. Um, so in my dad's mind, he's like, you know, all right, well, you know, I'm around for vacations and I'm around to like talk to the kids, so I must be doing a good job. And in my mom's mind, she's like, well, I'm taking care of all the house stuff, and you know, it, but like, so in her mind, everything's going fine. But it's like they're they're not addressing each other's patterns, um, which I think, by the way, that dynamic is very common with totally you know husbands and wives, and, yeah. Uh, just how traditionally kids were raised, but now the traditions are changing, so it becomes a lot more problematic in couples. Yeah, I, I was, I was talking to, um, I was, I've got a friend who's a therapist, and and I was talking to him recently about just this kind of stuff, and and I was saying, it, you know, it's funny. I think a huge component of simply like having a good relationship is understanding the other person's psychology, like understanding. Like not just you know what they like, uh, what makes them happy, what kind of gifts do they prefer, what do they, they like to do for fun, but also understand like what are their insecurities, how do they avoid problems, um, what do they use to numb themselves? Because we all use something to numb ourselves, and so if you can like spot those things in your partner, then you can kind of be a, like a lookout guard for each other. Like you can kind of call it out. You're like, hey, you've been avoiding. The, like I think you're avoiding this thing. You've been acting this way the last week or two. Like, is something wrong? And that can kind of trigger your partner to sit down and be like, "Huh, yeah, actually, yeah, I think something's wrong." You know, because or it, it can trigger defensiveness. Sure. Which that's the other. That's another of many ingredients of a successful relationship. Is but yeah, you you need to be open to stuff like that. You can't, um, you know, you there has to be a certain like willingness for vulnerability to to hear that kind of stuff. So 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 at this pivotal age for you uh you basically your whole life turned upside down you're probably scared to death for a really long time yeah and it kind of uh you probably gave too too much attention to what people thought about you when you kind of then burst through this childhood into you know young adulthood and you know your 20s and so on yeah um you know being a teen i think being a teenager is hard for everybody like everybody's a little bit you know, gives too many fucks about um, social approval around that time, and and we're all very insecure around that time. Uh, it was particularly hard for me because I went through all this stuff that was very painful, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And then on top of that, I got pushed into like a Christian private school, and I was like this atheist kid who listened to Marilyn Manson and was like, "What the fuck is chapel? Like, I don't want to be here." <laughs> you know? Wait, so, didn't, you, didn't your parents take away your Marilyn Manson uh, records? I think you mentioned that. In the- they did. They did, but thankfully, around this time, the the glories of the internet and Napster were emerging. I so <laughs> it didn't take long to get to get that back. Um, but yeah, so I kind of got thrust into this new environment where I just I really felt like I didn't fit in for the first couple of years, um, and so that was very difficult. And so yeah, I I I grew up. I would say I I, I grew up with a very unhealthy. Um, very unhealthy tendencies around just like social approval, or, or I guess a better way to put it is like I became, 
I I ended up being far more insecure, I think, um, socially than most people. Um, Because again, we're all insecure at those ages. But I think I I kind of came out of came out of it with like some neuroticism around it, which kind of led into some of the things I did in my twenties. And what what kind of um, was like sort of breaking point where you decided, okay, enough's enough. I can't do this anymore. Um, in what regard? In in the sense that I've got to stop this neuroses. Like I, I've got to stop this constant need for giving literally giving a fuck to too many things that aren't important that aren't <laughs> right. my values. Um well that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Um cuz I really don't think I've, I I I kind of sorted that out until my like my mid or late 20s. Um I I'll, I will say this when I when I got to college uh things got much better but I became I I basically became like the party guy and I and I developed um I developed a fixation on my relationships with women. Um, was just like very obsessive, not about the women themselves, but just like, con- like I was this like bottomless pit of approval seeking. Um, I wanted to hook up with as many as possible. I wanted to sleep with as many as possible. I wanted to date as many as possible to the point where it's like it legitimately in- interfered with other areas of my life. Like it was, it was an issue. Um, similarly, when I started my my online business a few years later, um, I did the whole Tim Ferriss thing and lived nomadically, which was fantastic. I loved it. And your first online business was I uh, was it related? To, you were doing dating uh, online dating coaching or courses? Yeah. So I started a few things, but that's the one that stuck. Um, origi- so what, what, originally, it was kind of just basic like affiliate stuff and blogging, but then I started doing consulting myself. I feel like um, so. Just to describe it, uh, so you you were you created some content, built a list, and then were an affiliate for other people selling courses. Yeah. So, so yeah, like two. So I graduated school in '07, which was a great time to graduate school because there were no jobs. Um, so I was kind of in this weird period where I was bumming around on a friend's couch, sending out resumes like every day. Nobody's responding. Um, the economy's in the toilet. And meanwhile, it's like um, among all my friends and and all the people I hang out with, like I'm the guy that they go to if they've got girl problems or if they want to meet a girl or if they like they want to get a date. Um, and so I, I I and then around that time I read Tim Ferriss's book Four Hour Work Week and and I was like wow that sounds easy I'll create a website and um, so I, I started building websites and and I I had kind of like learned how to make web pages and stuff when I was a teenager um, so. A lot of it, it just it kind of felt natural, and, and originally it was just a way to make extra money. You know, it was like, oh, cool, I can like sell this guy's ebook and make twenty bucks like every few days. Um, and at that time, it's but how did like, you get the audience initially? It was just local people, so mm-hmm. it was just my buddies in Boston, and then they would send it to some other friends. And around that time, you had the whole pick up the artist thing going on, so like they had forums for guys in different cities and. Um, so sometimes my stuff would get posted there, but it was still it was very small. It was like, you know, a few dozen people a day would come to the to the mm-hmm. site or whatever. I I didn't really see it as like a serious opportunity until like a year or two later, um, and that's when I started like charging for coaching and and doing like phone consultations and things like that about dating and um, uh, relationships and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, initially, yeah, it was. Um, and you were kind of like uh, 
sort of different from the usual pickup artist scene, which is a little bit, I don't want to say scammy, but um, grimy. You, yeah, <laughs> you, your, your first book is called uh, "Models Attract You Know Women Through Honesty." Right. Yeah. So I was like, like I had read the game in a couple of those books. Like I read Tucker Max's books and Neil and Tucker, good good friends of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I enjoyed their work, but like. It took me a while to discover that there were people who read that stuff and they kind of like latched onto it like kind of a like a religion almost. Um, it was never like that with me. Like I kind of read it more as entertainment, um, which I think is how it was really intended. It was intended, yeah. right? Um, Tucker, first and foremost, is a great writer, and I yeah. think people really get confused. It's just like Hunter S. Thompson. People get really confused reading right. their stuff, and like or Charles Bukowski. Again, they get really confused and conflate the personality of the uh, realist character in the book with the writer. Right. And they're different. Like yeah. Hundreds, Thompson, Bukowski, Tucker Max, Neil Strauss, these are great writers right. first and foremost. Right. And it's, they're descriptive. They're not necessarily, necessarily prescriptive. Right. You know, I, I feel like Neil probably wrote the game initially as like almost. Um, you know, like a warning, <laughs> you know, yeah. like hey, and he's a journalist. Yeah, like, that yeah, was his exactly. Background. It's like look, look how deep this hole goes. Like this mm -hmm. can be pretty, pretty fucked up. So it wasn't until I kind of I I had been doing this for a while, and I decided to kind of start taking it seriously that I realized that there was this whole world of guys who were like crazy about this stuff, and um, so that's kind of where the the coaching started, um, and. I quickly realized, so back then particularly, a lot of the, the pickup artist stuff, it was all like, remember this, like memorize this line. And and when you get a girl's phone number, you text her this and make her text you. It was like all these like games, you know, like these like little manipulation games. Did that stuff work? Uh, if it did, this is what I, I, I would always tell guys. I, I would say, if that stuff does work, it's only going to work on a woman who is like, so insecure herself that like you you're not it's, right the whole negging thing for instance yeah like it's the the only girls that are are going to tolerate that sort of behavior out of a guy are are women who are incredibly insecure and manipulative themselves so like i i have this theory with with dating in general which is that you everybody kind of um self screens like whether you're intentional or unintentional about it like you're always screening out your your dating options by the way you behave so for instance, if you got a guy who uh, is really misogynistic, thinks women are like lying, cheaters, and deserve to be in the kitchen cooking all the time, and he goes out and tries to get a date, all the women who respect themselves are going to be completely disgusted by this guy. The only ones who are going to be like, oh, this guy sounds like a are the women who are lying cheaters who like want to spend all their time in the kitchen. So it's like you end up attracting what you put out. Mm -hmm. And it's similar to the law of attraction, but we don't have to get into mm -hmm. all that. But like you just sociologically from your behavior, you determine the values of the people you end up meeting. So yeah, if you're memorizing all these lines and playing all these games with with women, you're gonna find women who love to play games and like like do these power struggle things with you. And um which then causes the pickup artist guys to be like, oh man, like I need new techniques to like get the next leg up on the women that I'm dating. And so they go out and spend another like 500 bucks. And, and I, I think a lot of those guys just didn't see that. And, um, and so 
I kind of took it upon myself to try to be the one who would get through to them like, hey, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, there's, you can be an attractive man while also like maintaining your integrity and not, you know, fudging who you are, like performing for people, which is what a lot of that industry was about. Um, so that, that kind of became my rap, you know, after I'd, I'd, I'd gotten deeper into it. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Oh, payroll and benefits. Don't talk to me about them. If you're a small businessman, these are hard things to manage. You don't have an HR expert yet. You're busy selling your product. You're busy hiring people. You're busy finding your first customers. Thankfully, Gusto has your back. Gusto offers the best, clear, and automated payroll for the modern small business. From unlimited and off-cycle payrolls to direct deposit, multiple states, and pay rates, Gusto can help you with any and all of your payroll needs. You can even integrate Gusto with your accounting software, such as QuickBooks or Xero, to make payroll that much easier. Not to mention, Gusto automatically files and pays your payroll taxes, compiles and sends your W-2s and 1099s, and submits new hire forms, so you can truly set it and forget it. It's a streamlined platform that lets you take care of your team with payroll, benefits, and HR all in one place. One login, one password to remember. Better yet, with Gusto's simple, reliable technology and great customer service, you'll spend less time in paperwork and more time on what you care about. It's no wonder PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today, you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash James. So you were now, you were traveling around to cheaper countries so you could live off the profits from your online business. You were doing this and then, you know, you started to get more and more, it feels like you started to get more into taking your writing seriously, which I think probably directed how your values were changing as well. Yeah. So, um, I mean, writing, I I find, or any kind of self-expression, I find to be really almost leads the way rather than, you know, in terms of finding your values, rather than the other way around, like, oh, I'm going to, here are my values, so now I'm going to write about them. I think when you express yourself, it it kind of brings out what's inside of you that you didn't realize, and now you can realize, oh, these are the things I care more about, or these are the things that are making me feel anxious that I didn't know about before I was expressing myself. It's therapeutic in a lot of ways, and... um and I, I definitely agree with that. And it, it, I think it was kind of the, maybe the engine that kind of pushed my development along, um, because it forced me to kind of, uh, you know, decompress and deconstruct a lot of these experiences that I was having. I, and I was having like crazy experience. I was visiting all these countries and going out and partying all night and meeting all sorts of interesting people. And so, um, and, and that, especially particularly the first couple of years at travel, it really challenged a lot of my assumptions and beliefs about you know culture, um, relationships, what people consider intimacy, 
um, because all these things change depending on where you are in the world. And so it. it did, for- you, did you ever feel like, oh, here's a nice girl I I just met. I would love to get to know her a little longer instead of the usual, whatever. So yeah. So this is another neuroses that I had um, in in social psychology, basically in like relationship psychology. Like the most fundamental theory is something called attachment theory, and it's basically people who people who are raised without like a consistent level of support and care from their caretakers, um, they develop one of two kind of insecure, they're called insecure attachment types. One is avoidant and one is anxious. And the way it plays out when they become adults is anxious people tend to be what what we generically call clingers. You know, it's like they're they're the people that if you don't return their call, they like leave you 16 messages and and everywhere you go, they're like, well, can I come too? Can I come too? And it's like, okay, you know, back off. And the reason they're like that is that they were raised in such a way that their caretakers weren't dependable. They never knew when their caretaker was coming back. And so they're like, there's this constant anxiety of like, wait, 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 don't go, don't go. You know, and like they're constantly checking to make sure you're still there. On the on the other side, you have avoidance, who are people who just they basically they protect themselves by isolating themselves. And they uh, and there are many ways to do this. You can physically isolate yourself. You can emotionally isolate yourself by just keeping all of your interactions with people very superficial and fake. Um, you can isolate yourself by keeping yourself busy, you know, always being at work or always having somewhere to go or whatever. I think I've been all of the above on these things. You can be both at the same time. Um, but I'm like prototypical avoidant. Um, and I always struggled to so like all my early relationships when I was younger, like I was terrified of intimacy, like legit, like you know, panic attack level, like oh my god, like I put my early girlfriends, I put them through hell. Um, if they're listening, I apologize um, because it's like I was such a head case around, you know, it was it was always dating was easy for me because it's it's so superficial and you're getting to know them and it's exciting and everything's new and like it's very fun. Um, but anytime I met a, a woman that, you know, say you get to like two or three months and it turns out we really like each other, like I I would just lose my mind and and start finding ways to sabotage it or like to make it go away. Um, and living nomadically, doing like the whole four hour work week lifestyle, it is incredible in some ways, like it's it is a fantastic way to see the world, gain new experiences. Like I, I mean, I grew a lot from those years traveling, but it took me a while to realize that I was also kind of conveniently setting myself up to always be in a context where I'm not going to be around. And at the same time, were you also on a, on a parallel track? You're trying to create an online business and bring in money for yourself so you can continue this lifestyle. Did you have, were you the sort to get anxious about money as well, or did you have kind of a confidence about that? Um, early on, I was very anxious about money, um, which kind of just led me. I was very frugal and kind of a workaholic for the first three or four years. Um, fortunately, I'm not one of those people who. Like I don't spend much. I'm I'm very I have a very Spartan lifestyle. Uh, so once I kind of was earning enough to 
you know, pay for my expenses and pay for my travel and put a little bit in the bank each month, uh, I, all those anxieties went away. So it, it's never been a huge sticking point for me. It's always been like the intimacy stuff. So, so now you've been traveling around in part as a, an avoidant sort of nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. And when did you start giving a <laughs> fuck? <laughs> so something, some funny things started happening. I would, and and I wrote if the, if you go to my blog, there's um there's an article. I think it's called like the the joy the 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 simple pleasures are the most meaningful or something like that. It's something like it, I think I wrote it like 2010, 2011. Um, you've probably had this experience where like there are articles on your site that maybe didn't get a ton of attention from readers, but they're hugely important for you personally. Yeah. Like they're a big definitely. turning point for you. Um, so that was one of them for me personally. Like that was a huge turning point for me. Um, and I think mostly my readership is kind of just like glossed over it. But basically what I say in that article is, is by that point I had been traveling for a couple of years and I had had these like ridiculous experiences that like I call them on paper experiences. So, you know, like I climbed the Great Wall of China and I uh, I went to Carnival and I like, you know, did all this like amazing, amazing stuff. Like scuba dived on the Great Barrier Reef and did all this stuff. And I was like far enough into my journey that the highs of those experiences had kind of worn off. And so all, all I was really left with was like pictures and some stories to tell, which is cool, which is great. But what I started noticing is that I would I would go home and visit and I would like see my childhood friends and I would go out and have beers with my friends. And and I was like, wow, that was actually like the highlight of my year. <laughs> you know, it's like I just went to like these these 13 countries this year, but it was actually coming home and like going to a New Year's party with my my old friends who've known me for twelve years, that was like kind of the highlight. I, I think there's a lot of consistent themes in that you know a lot of things are motivated by who you're around. Yeah. So when you were a kid, you were around with the wrong crowd. So your parents pulled you out of school, put you into a different school, and even the the forms of entertainment around you they kind of shifted that. So yeah. like what you were consuming, literally, they would uh, change that. But then. Later was how you set up who you were going to be around and how it was going to be kind of this constantly shifting landscape of people. And you had to kind of get back to your roots to see, oh, what's making me happiest, which is sort of separating out the good values from the bad values. What's making you happiest was literally the the friendship, the, yeah. the these roots of friendship. Well, and, and I think there's a little bit of an interesting transition that happens around then just in terms of age. Because if you think about it, like, People in their early 20s, like if you think about what your social life means in, say, your teenage years and early 20s, pretty much everybody you meet is new and exciting. You know, if you think about your typical 20, 21 year old, it's like you want to go meet every, you want to go to the bar and you want to like see what's happening. You want to go to every party. Like you, you're, there's this kind of insatiable curiosity about new people because all the new experiences are so exciting. I think what happens, once you start getting into your late 20s and definitely early 30s, is that you're old enough to realize that, well, first of all, a lot of those experiences stop being exciting. You know, So it's like the hundredth party you go to is pretty cool, but the thousandth is like, it's repetitive. Um, and so 
with the the benefit of of that age and and those years is you start to you start to actually be able to tell which friendships are significant and are going to last and which ones don't. So when I started traveling in my mind I'm like wow I'm going to all these countries and making friends everywhere I go. This is so cool. But then jump ahead 3 years later and I realize like I'm not actually keeping in touch with any of these people. Like and I'm losing touch with all the people back in the states. So what am I really gaining here? I'm gaining a bunch of like, you know, there's like that that quote in Fight Club um where it's like uh like the personally packaged friendships or like whatever like he's like joking how like every time you travel you get like you got like a friend for the trip and then you go home and it's like it's like a towel in a hotel like you right. never, you never use it again. Um so it got me really questioning that. Like and I started to regard community like having a community of people and like a steady like steady friendships I could rely on. Um I started to value that in a way that I never really valued before. I think it's important too because let's say in your 30s when people start settling down with families, it's actually very hard to build new friendships. Yeah. And it's it's still just as important yep. because we need that community. Again, we're we're tribal animals yep. and that's part of the whole, you know, validation and and tribe thing, but uh uh but it becomes more difficult. Yeah. And and in your 40s even more difficult. Like it's always gets more difficult until until your 70s I think it gets more difficult because then you move <laughs> into an old age home and then it's easy again. Yeah, it's so easy. it comes full circle. <laughs> It's funny though, because as with a lot of these things in our lives, like I was the last person to figure this out. Um, so people around me were kind of like telling me this, you know, they're like, don't you miss like having like regular friends around? Don't you miss your family back home? And I was like, nah, well, whatever. Like I'm going to Tahiti and, you know, I was, it's always like looking forward to the next thing. Um, and I started to notice that I, well, I started, to be frank, I started like getting depressed. I started like just being bummed out frequently. And what I noticed is that whenever I would stay somewhere for a long period of time, so if I stayed somewhere like say like six months, it would be incredible and I wouldn't want to leave at the end of it. And I'd go somewhere for one month and I'd be like, why did I even come? Like I didn't even enjoy it here. Mm-hmm. And so I kept like extending my stays everywhere I went and until finally like it hit after a couple of years, it like hit me. I'm like, oh, idiot. The reason I want to stay is because I actually like put down roots and like had a community of people that I saw frequently. Um and so that's when I was like, you know, it's probably time to settle down somewhere. <laughs> Which was great. And as soon as I moved to New York, it was like, wow, this is the why didn't I do this two years ago? So So and that's you know, it's probably around then you wrote the subtle art of not giving a fuck, the, the original blog post. Yeah. And what led to, you know, that and the advice all around it. Well, let me just ask you from my point of view, mm-hmm. I find, you know, as much as I try not to, because I realize it's important to not, it's important to focus on the work and, and the, if you're, if you're producing a product that other people are going to be consuming, whether it's a, technology product or an artistic product or a creative product or uh, advice product, uh, you have to care a little, yeah. right? Which we talked about before, but there's this balance. And I get like, for instance, nervous if I don't publish every, I publish every single day. I've published every single day almost for 
15 years straight. It's crazy. So it's it's crazy. <laughs> and I don't I don't Cheers even feel you, like doing it anymore. <laughs> but but I feel like oh people will I get this thing in the back of my head. People will completely forget about me if yeah. I I don't publish every single day. And then you start looking at the engagement, all that. Now that's an extreme. I don't do that. I don't have that thinking every day. Right. But uh, when I don't have that style of thinking, it's because I'm consciously aware that oh, I don't need to think that way. But mm-hmm. what's how? What are kind of steps in place so that I, for instance, wouldn't care as much? Sure. So. I mean, I struggle with this. It's nice because we're both in the same profession, so it's it's easy for right. it's, a, it's an easy example for me to talk about. Uh, I struggle with the same thing too. Like, there's, I go through periods, weeks or months, where it's like, wow, I just I don't want to, I don't want to make it create any articles, and and I feel the same insecurities. Like, oh crap, my traffic the last two months is like lower than it was before, and you start getting all these irrational fears in your head. Like, well, what if I've peaked? Like, what if I'm what if in five years I'm like nobody's gonna remember who I am and nobody's gonna read me anymore? And and, and just to just to sorry for interrupting, but yeah. one time and this has always been uh, I always ask people this because I've always been a concern of mine. So it's like three or four years ago I asked Ice T, the rapper, yeah. uh, if I said to him, if you just stayed in your house and didn't talk to anybody or do anything or appear on any TV show, how long would it take before people forgot about you? Like I asked yeah. it just directly like that. And he even had an answer, like within uh, he had it like ready. Yeah, six months, wow. which scared me because he's iced tea. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with him. I don't agree with him. <laughs> I don't agree with him either. But that like threw me for a loop. Yeah, I mean, if you think of your uh, like, I I it's always weird to talk about myself or people like us as brands. But like, if you think about like the James Altucher brand, you know, it's like there's going to be a a depreciation over time. If you're not like doing upkeep, if you're not like creating new stuff, and it's a legitimate question, like how fast does that fall off? Um, I don't know if it ever completely falls off because you, you, there's people like John Travolta who didn't do a movie for like ten years, and then he shows up in Pulp Fiction, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, it's the Saturday Night Fever guy! This is awesome." Um, Are you comparing us to John Travolta now? <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> uh, I don't know. But would you uh, like to be compared to John Travolta? <laughs> certainly, Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta was 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 pretty good. He was the biggest star in the world at the time. He was, yeah, man. He was on top of his game. Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind being John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's a constant concern, and you know. One thing I try, so when I'm in those situations and I feel myself kind of getting caught up in those those anxieties and those those thoughts, um, is I try to remind myself, you know, like what is like, what's actually the principle here? Like, what am I really doing? Am, am I just this like monkey who's like fishing for for page views and likes, or or like what's what's actually at the heart of what I'm doing? And in the heart of like what what both of us are doing is like. We're creating something valuable. We're creating content that other people that is valuable to other people, or people enjoy. Um, people get something out of, and so I try to just bring myself to that. All right, just make something valuable because once you do that, everything else takes care of itself, and it doesn't really matter, you know, because the internet's such a crazy place and it's changing so fast. I mean, there's going to be years ahead of us where. Our audience shrinks by twenty percent. There's going to be years where it grows by fifty percent. It's going to shrink again by twenty percent. Like, and 
I try not, it's good to watch those things, but like I try to not get too attached to it. And I just try to remind myself like, if I'm being valuable and making stuff that like making good shit that's valuable, people will show up. I think an, uh, another way it's been put to me, uh, I was I was talking to another musician and I asked him a similar thing about like his YouTube views. And he said to me, uh, uh, basically nobody remembers your bad stuff. Yeah. So if you, it's like what you just said. If you put out like imagine like you mentioned Tim Ferriss with the with the four hour brand. So he did the four hour work week, yep. four hour body, four hour chef. All three were great books. I recommend yep. them. I enjoyed them. But let's just say one of them wasn't so good. Sure. And then a few years later, he put out Tools of the Titans, which I think is like so above and beyond like a great book. Nobody would have remembered. People would have said, oh yeah, tools. he's the guy who wrote Tools of the Titans. Nobody well, would have remembered the, an earlier one. Well, and this is why we're fortunate as well, because I think this happens more with books than it does like other art forms. But like with books, for instance, you take a book like 4-Hour Workweek, like that was such a game changer for like me and millions of other people. When you get a when you get a book like that that like just fundamentally changes the course of somebody's life, like I'm gonna buy Tim Ferriss books for for the next twenty years. Like I'm not even gonna think about it, you know. Like even if I stop listening to his podcast, like a Tim Ferriss book comes out, I'll probably just go buy it just because of that one experience I had in 2008. Um, it's just gonna carry. It's gonna carry him for that long for for people like me and I, I think that happens with a lot of authors like if i think about my famous authors it's like or my favorite authors like new book i don't even think about it i don't even look at the back what what about musicians so like let's say uh you know someone had their you know like abba had their 5 year right. period and like it seems like every most groups have their 5 year period so, uh, which groups do you think have kind of and they're they're allowed to live off that music sure. because people love hearing the same music again and again, as opposed to most people don't like reading the same book over and over right. again. And uh, but but do you know of any music groups that would you say okay they had their five year period, then they stopped for ten years, and then they had another great five year period? Sure. Well, it's not even necessarily a great five year period. You know, take like Metallica for instance. Like their Metallica's eighties. Of wah is like the pinnacle of heavy rock music. And I haven't really enjoyed any of their albums in the last 15 years. I still buy every single one just because right. they're Metallica. And I think I think there's a certain threshold that artists cross to get to that level. So, you know, like U2 is probably there. Somebody like Madonna is probably there for a lot of people. The Beatles or the Rolling Stones. If the Rolling Stones put out a new album this year, like Millions of people are going to go buy it just because it's the Rolling Stones. And yet, I would say there's probably like an eight to ten year period for them where all of the hits that you know that, yeah. that people know of were done just from like 1964 or 1972, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So there's this weird threshold that I think you hit, um, and I think when you look at books, it's it's the same thing. You know, like Tony Robbins puts out a book, everybody goes buy, goes and buys it. Like they don't it doesn't even matter what he puts out. Like he could put out a children's book and millions of people go buy it but i like the idea of not of not wanting to hit that threshold like because <laughs> you know i it's it, i like the idea of feeling it's okay to to just enjoy what you're doing we're mm -hmm. only here for you know there's 7 billion people and it's a cliche to say but we're only here for this short amount of time and then sure. everyone's going to forget us in two generations anyway yeah what are we really going for and and like for me one, one way i kind of have just been playing with more recently is 
constantly finding other metrics. Yep. So I'm I'm always on uh, a different. I diversify learning curves. So okay, uh, writing not feeling so well. I'll do a podcast. Yeah, podcasting not feeling so well. I'll take ping pong lessons. Yeah, ping pong lessons doing not as well. Uh, I'll go to a stand up comedy club and perform. Yeah, or something. You know, or I'll, or I'll start another business and see how that goes. And yeah, because uh, yeah, I think it's. I think you know, and a lot of these artists that do achieve that threshold, it's interesting because then a certain pressure is relieved off of them. You know, it's like they know they can, like Tony Robbins knows he can transcribe anything and it's going to sell like a million copies. So that 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 like removes a certain pressure that I think is healthy for like an artistic, yeah, pursuit. Um, you actually you had Chuck Klosterman on yeah. on like a couple months ago I think. I'm a, I'm a huge, and he's coming on again. Oh really? Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of his and um, been reading his stuff forever. And his new his new book it had one chapter that I loved where he was talking about he's basically talking about this question of like what do we consider like what survives like what is considered great say like a hundred years later. And he takes like the example of Moby Dick. He's like, everybody hated Moby Dick when it came out. And it wasn't until like 80 years later after Melville died that everybody decided it was the great American novel. And then he kind of talks about like groups and artists and stuff from today that how that could get all scrambled. And 100 years from now, you know, people decide that Journey is like the epitome of 20th century rock music. Hey, don't stop believing in separate ways. (laughs) They're both in my top, probably top 10. so it's like I, I found that chapter fascinating because um, I have a chapter in my book called um, "You're Wrong About Everything, But So Am I," and basically in that chapter, the whole chapter is just about like how bad our brains are at like actually knowing things, remembering things, perceiving things, understanding things. Like we are constantly so biased, and like there's so many gaps in our reasoning and everything that we really, really have. Most of the time, have no clue um, <laughs> what we're talking about, and and I I think that's a very helpful and powerful concept because, um, you know, when those anxieties and fears come up, you know, it's like oh, well, people are going to stop reading me, and it's my I'm going to be a nobody, and my career is going to collapse. It's like you don't know that. Like that's just your brain talking shit. Like all of our brains do, and right, and, like we really don't know that. Like all that conversation in the head, it's it's, it's nonsense. It's, right, and it's. And I love I love Klosterman's cha- chapter about that because it it just shows that like even so even some of these like big names that we're talking about right now like people like Ferris and Robbins and Metallica and you know the Stones or whatever it's like fifty years from now people would be like who's that well like, and you mentioned um, you know I read I read so many books but I'm pretty sure that, uh, I had read this in yours about Metallica and Megadeth yep. uh, Mustaine yep. uh, views. His career as a failure, even though you know, so he was thrown out of Metallica, created Megadeth. You tell the whole story yeah. in the book, and Megadeth sells twenty five million albums, but Metallica sold one hundred eighty. Yeah. So he compares himself to that, and he just feels miserable all the time. Yeah, yeah. He like went through this whole period in his career where he was like very depressed and upset about it because um, he created the second greatest metal band of all time. <laughs> so, right. So, so again, so so someone. Let's say someone's listening to this. I always yeah. get to the example of like someone's listening to this in their cubicle mm-hmm. and they're they're constantly wondering if they're going to get promoted. They're afraid to uh, maybe take the chance of starting something on the side because what will people think? Sure. What family, their boss, 
uh, their friends? What if they fail? You know, the kind of typical fear of failure. Yeah. Or, or if you're listening to this and you're in an artistic endeavor or whatever, how do you start to kind of, what is the subtle art? Like, what? Sure. how do you do it? So, yeah, this really gets like deep into what the book is about because what I try to do throughout the book is kind of just deconstruct our whole idea of like what a good successful life is. Like, so people who are out there who are like worried, like, oh, I've got this business idea or, you know, I want to maybe switch careers and I have no idea what people are going to think and my mom will hate me and, you know, what if I never make any money? And it's kind of the point that I make throughout the book is A, you actually have no clue whatsoever. Like anything you think is going to happen. So all the self-talk. Yeah, all the self-talk, it's 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 nonsense. Like you you really really don't know until you actually like go live it. Two, you don't even know what success and failure necessarily are. Like it could be starting a business and having it fail. I mean, you're an example of this. Starting a business having it fail getting the money problems might end up being like one of the best things that happens to you. Like some of our most powerful and constructive life experiences are actually extremely negative. I think I think the interesting thing there is that's true and sometimes it's hard to realize when the experience is happening. When it's happening, yeah. But you almost have to be like you almost have to like put the movie Star Wars on because you kind of have to like what what I do is I I even though Sheryl Sandberg wrote the book Lean In. Yeah which I haven't read, but I like the <laughs> phrase lean in. Sure. I feel like I have to lean into the problem yes. and just say, okay, I know this is going to work out differently than I think. Yeah. Like I'm going to lean into this and see what happens. I'm gonna, yeah. Something good will happen if I do all the right things yeah. from this point. Yeah. So we got the first thing, you don't actually know what the hell is going on. Two, your idea of success or failure is likely completely wrong or it's arbitrary. It's just this thing you made up in your head. Um, and so that leaves us, okay, so what do we give a fuck about? And what I argue in the book is that there's just really some fundamental principles that should be the driving thing, um, which is creating value, doing something that is doing this, doing something for the, just the sake of doing it. Um, doing something like what? Give what would be an example? Like we were talking about earlier. Like I, you, and I could sit here and obsess over our blogs and our platforms and be like, "Oh, well, my traffic dropped ten percent last month, and so I got a people like blogs with dick jokes. So I'm going to put a dick joke in every blog, you know, for the next month and get my traffic back up. And it's like that's a like that's an easy way to just kind of suck the joy and um power out of like a creative endeavor. So for us, like what I said earlier is like, you know, when I when I start getting overwhelmed by all that negative self-talk, I A remind myself that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And B, just focus on building something valuable, creating like creating something valuable that people are gonna that I think is going to help people or make the world a better place. It's cliche, but it's it really is that simple. Like there are just a few simple principles that we have to get back to. Um, and and it's you know building creating value uh living with integrity taking care of yourself the people around you like it it really is that simple um and it's a lot of this stuff about success failure um being a good person a bad person a cool person a popular person it's all it's just noise it's it, it's very interesting because when you get right down to it 
the numbers are almost artificial metrics, which which you point out, you know, all throughout the book. But like a podcast might get, let's just say, you know, hundreds of thousands or a million downloads, and that might be good, good or bad. But for instance, I'm trying to get better at doing stand-up comedy, and right. then the crowd is only 50 people right. maximum, 60 right. people maybe, and so. And if I get people to laugh, then I feel like I'm on, you know, yeah. the clouds. I'm I'm so happy. So uh, just all these ways we judge success in each endeavor yeah. is it's completely different, and it's it's all nonsense. If you yeah. feel good about what you're doing, and you feel like you say, if you're building friendships, if you're helping people, if you're meeting new people, if you're if you're doing something you enjoy, uh, which takes experimentation to find. Like you have to do things. You can't. You can't sort of guess what you're going to enjoy. Yeah. You have to actually do things to see what you enjoy. Yeah, and that's all part of it. Yeah, it's one of like kind of the head games I'm I'm been playing with myself the last couple of months. So I, I've started working like the very early work of my next book. And what's, what's that called? What's the title? Uh, it's going to be called Love Is Not Enough. It's going to be about relationships, um, and it's it I'm. It's funny because subtle art, like in terms of external success, like numbers and sales and metrics and all this stuff, like subtle art success has been way beyond I ever anticipated or even hoped for at this point. Like I'm, I'm well, consistently the, stunned. The book is great, and you're a really good writer. And again, that very super direct style you have, I feel is your. Like I could. You can't say this about too many writers, but I could now recognize like a Mark Manson article right. and chapters. And I think that's a really good achievement. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because, you know, that was all like happy and exciting. And then I started working on the next book. And now I'm like playing this head game with myself of like, because I basically know there's pretty much nothing I could write or not nothing, but I mean, pretty much anything I write next, it's, it's quote unquote success again, like all this pressure, you know, in terms of sales and how many people read it and where it's promoted and where it's reviewed. It's going to pale in comparison. Like 99.9% chance, whatever I write next, it's going to be a fraction as like conventional, conventionally successful as subtle art was. And so I've been playing this head game with myself because it's, it like freaks me out. And um, every time I, I find myself sometimes when I'm working on the next one, I start c- comparing it to subtle art and like that's just unfair and that's stupid. And and one thing I've been thinking a lot, I was like, you know, if you write a book that is, say it's read by 200,000 people and they love it and it's like very impactful on them. And then you write another book and it's read by say 20,000 people and it's hugely impactful and they love it. Is that necessarily less successful? I mean, numerically it is, but like, does that mean it's not worth writing the second one? Like, is that something to be ashamed? Like, it's, it's, and this is like, and part of this is, is pushed on you by the publishing world because the publisher, all the publisher cares about is copy sold and whether you got in the Times or not and whatever. I think, I think it's a combination of both. The publisher definitely treats you with more respect purely on yeah. numbers. Um, but, it's really it's really hard to say because like the book Choose Yourself sold a lot of copies for me. And let's say the next one, the Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth, didn't sell as many right. copies, but still a lot of people love the book. It might have been a better right. book. Uh you know, I don't know the 
the answer to that, but I know I enjoyed writing it as much. And right, well, and this is this and, is and, what, and, and this you can kind of go all out sometimes if you think, oh, it's not going to sell as well as this. You right. could then say, okay, I'm just going to go crazy Fuck now. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is where I have to keep bringing my brain back to where it's like, like that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is writing a valuable book. What matters is writing a book that I'm excited about. And I think other people are going to be excited about and not getting caught up in that comparison game, which our brain just like naturally rushes right, and, to. And you know, also it's 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 having the ability to kind of switch the tribe you're comparing yourself to. Yeah. So now, like, you know, in in writing, well, we keep using that as an example, but think of the people who win the National Book Award, like fiction writers who win the National Book Award. Those are usually literary books. Yep. And like last year's National Book Award winner, I forget who it is, but he had sold or she had sold 2,500 copies. I remember reading when the winners were announced. It's crazy. Like, she, yeah. they, whoever it was sold more afterwards because she just sure. won this award. But until then, the book had been out a year and only sold 20, only quote unquote sold 2,500 right. copies, which is small compared to the 20,000. Right. But look, that, that was good enough to, for that right. person reach some other goal and other metric yeah. you know they depending on how they define success yeah and so it's well coming kind of full circle it's like it's like what you said at the beginning of the show like it is a constant struggle like you constantly have to bring your brain back to like you know this is what matters like this is how i'm going to measure myself like i'm not going to like you don't have to get caught up and all that stuff if you don't want to um and you know, and the same thing with with money. Like it's like you said, you live a, a sort of Spartan life. I do as well. Uh, uh, some people buy more things, yeah. but, but you know, and everybody thinks of what's the number I need. Right. Or, you know, a there might not be a number because if you do what you enjoy and you get paid for it, then you're rich forever. Or if you you know get a small number and don't live in Manhattan. You know, it's a different story as well. Yeah. Like it just depends on where you live and, yep. and ma many things. So money is not as much a, 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 as important as. And you point out the the standard case with the marginal utility of making more money. But uh, uh, you know, the real key thing is doing finding things that you love doing. So sure. any moment of the day, regardless of who likes you or not, you you could say, well, this moment I'm doing something I enjoy doing. Like. Ten years from now, you might not be writing books, for instance. Right. You might be a heavy metal uh, <laughs> rock star, <laughs> or, or maybe just playing in like some a cover band, yeah, a journey cover band, yeah, a journey that. cover band, in some <laughs> hole in the wall. But you just love it, yeah. and and thirty people show up uh, every time, yeah. and that's all you want to do. Yeah, it's it's it it screws with your head. It's funny. It's it's like the comedy thing, you know. It's like showing up and there's twenty people in the audience or whatever. Like it's. It is, um, yeah. It's it's a funny it's a funny game that our head plays, and you know one of the things that I always point out in my work is that you know I think a lot of people they don't even think about it. They just kind of have this assumption. It's like, oh, if I could achieve this success or make this much money or you know get married or whatever, like then I'll be happy. And it's what I point out in my book is I'm like, no, our brain is literally evolve to constantly be slightly unsatisfied like you doesn't matter you can get super rich super famous go poor like your brain is always going to find a problem in everything and it's always going to find some comparison that is unfavorable to you and that's just the way our brains work and so the trick isn't to 
like achieve everything. The trick is to simply uh, figure out the game, like figure out the way our brain works and so, trust so, it a little less. So, right. So, so, so a lot of the theme is essentially, you know, trusting the brain a little less. Yeah. But also having values that you sort of figuring out through trial and error, I guess. Yeah. What values you do literally give a fuck about so that yeah. those are the things you do instead of wasting the enormous 99.9% of the time you spend seeking validation or yeah. Instagram likes or whatever. You yeah. know, um, I, so I think, I think the book's incredibly valuable. You tell great stories all throughout. Each chapter kind of addresses another aspect of this. We've only touched upon a, a few of the aspects. And again, some, some of the quotes from beginning to end, which is sort of surprising. Usually in a book, you see in the beginning they've got yeah. like a lot of highlights, and as it goes on, there's fewer and fewer highlights. Yeah. You've got you got like four thousand highlights on some passages towards the end of the book, even so people yeah. are reading every word. Yeah, and so I highly encourage people to to read it again. Mark Manson, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. We've said fuck more times in this podcast <laughs> than I've ever said before. I've even had like the 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 most explicit comedians on this podcast who say it like every other word and we've said it more than they've said it. So, I, I thought I was toning it down a little bit. I you was, were, you I were. Was I, was, I was just calling it what it was though. I wasn't giving a fuck. Good. So Good. thanks so much for coming on and I'll see you at the next poker game. Yeah, see you. Hopefully you'll then recognize I'll, me. I'll remember. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Thanks, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. For instance, I'm going to give like a little humble, it's actually, it's not even a humble brag. It's like an ego brag. Tim at Aggrad, A-G-G-R-A-D, said, this is my favorite podcast by far. Seriously, not hyperbole. James is a genius. He researches guests extensively and always seems to deliver the perfect question at the perfect time. He has a very high standard for guests. Every episode makes me think. Highly recommend. Tim, that was a really great review. Thank you. I'm going to try, hopefully, to keep the same standard of, of questions, and, and we'll see. I, but I really enjoy reading these. So, Tim, it means a lot to me, and I'm grateful for your support. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.